So this is weird, huh? If you're, if you're visiting with us and you're just walking in here, you're like, this is a strange church. Um, <laughs> what are they doing? Well, what we are doing is what we have referred to as Ask the Pastors. And so it's a way for us to try to step out of the regular rhythms of our, of our normal worship and uh, set aside some time, carve out some time intentionally within the context of worship for us to engage in what is uh, known as public theology. Um, theos, God, logic, logic, uh, word speaking, theology speaking about the things of God, about our faith. And so we think it's good to model doing this in public to say there are not right or wrong answers, there are not you know, experts that, uh, that necessarily hold the key to all of our questions, but there's a way for us to faithfully engage in our, our doubts, our questions, um, and or to share something that moves us uh, related to the Bible, to the, your experience of, of the Christian church. Um, qu questions come uh, at these sessions from all angles. So uh, Brent will uh, have a microphone available, so if you have a question, you'll just indicate uh, we, uh, we've got something to say, and Brent will track you down and hand you the mic, and just be brave uh, and, uh, and share what it is you've got on your heart, and then we'll engage with that, that together. So I'll begin by reading again the scripture, which is a, a very famous uh, a parable uh, of Jesus. Uh, from the 10th chapter of Luke this morning. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So <clears throat> it's just a fantastic and rich story. We, most all of us, if we've been churchgoers for a 
good part of our life have a version of the, the Good Samaritan, as it's generally referred to, rattling around in our heads. Um, and uh, whenever that's true, whenever there is a story that's just so uh, prevalent in the consciousness of the people, it tends to be, uh, there is a tendency for it to be simplified and moralized, you know. Uh, and, and so when we go scrubbing back through these with a careful eye, we might see things that we hadn't noticed before. And there's just so much in this story that I think is engaging and interesting. Um, the, the lawyer's question uh, is, is, I think, a question that so many ask today. And I think that we get kind of hoodwinked as a church into answering that question rather than a more a, a deeper question about how, how might we live out this life we've been given together. You know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm pretty sure that this life is sort of a trial run for the great hereafter. How can I get to the right place after I die? But Jesus really turns that question into a, a discussion about living here and now. Jesus, in his answer, says, you do, do these things, and not you will have eternal life, not you'll have, you know, you'll be in heaven uh, for all eternity. Jesus says, do these things and you will live, which I think is, is important. The man was trying to justify himself, we're told. A couple of weeks ago, we noticed that the disciples were not, not being happy with the way the, the word was received among the Samaritans when Jesus was leading his disciples through that territory, territory of uh, of a people who were at enmity, they were, they were distrustful of each other, the, the, the Jewish people and the, the Samaritans. And uh, the, the disciples didn't like the reaction of the Samaritans as they passed through that time. They, they, they asked Jesus, hey, would it be all right if we rain down fire on these people? <laughs> I think that context still, uh, a couple of chapters earlier, informs uh, this story that Jesus tells in response to the question about what must I do to inherit eternal life that this lawyer asks, right? Uh, the priest is not the neighbor in the story. The Levite, the religious elite leader is not. It is a Samaritan. Remember the guys you wanted to rain down fire upon? So there's that. Uh, Anyway, there's a lot there. So maybe there's a question or a comment or something that comes to mind. For you, as you hear that story, uh, even fresh here this morning, something that occurs to you, maybe you have something you'd like to discuss or ask related to uh, any of the other topics that I've already set out there. So we like to throw a timer up on the screen because time gets away from us when we do this, but um, we'll see if uh, we've got somebody to kind of crack the ice. There we go. Uh, I really, uh, what I have is a wonderment. I'm wondering why you don't wear robes <laughs> of the church. Why, I, like how your, I like how your wife put her why head in her hand I, when you ask uh, that Why question. we currently are not wearing robes? Yeah. <laughs> um, every church that I've grown up in, all of the uh, pastors have worn wore the robes. And I'm just wondering why you guys don't. Just a question. Yeah. So, um, robes or albs or vestments are, uh, have a long history in certain uh, parts of the 
of the church, uh, more often in traditional liturgical expressions of the church. And for most of my 30 years as an ordained pastor, I've worn an alb or a robe and a stole. At times, in my first call, I even wore chasubles and <laughs> oh all gosh. that stuff just because they were there in the closet. Uh, uh, the church owned them, so, oh you know, gosh. I paraded around in those for a while, but... If you don't know what a chasuble is, like what the Pope wears, not the hat, but like the big robey thing. I did not wear the hat. Oh, you didn't. However, if I, they had... I would have had, <laughs> had, been in the had one no, in the closet. Not really. <laughs> it's... I, I'll let Pastor Natalia answer for herself, but for me, it's... Uh, it's uh, n not important f for me. Uh, it's uncomfortable for me to wrap myself in that heavy, sort of cumbersome garment. Um, I, would, I, I would be sweating even now. And uh, so it's, it's partly that. I'll say early on, <laughs> when I was uh, vesting, I will say, uh, and Pastor Natalia was getting started serving in pastoral ministry here at Prince of Peace, but prior to having been ordained, uh, which is indicated by the wearing of the stole, I did not want to create a kind of visual uh, uh, distinction between the two of us by, by I'm wearing the stole and she is not. Uh, I, I intentionally didn't want that to be part of the message that I was visibly sending to the congregation for, it was almost two years that you were in that role prior to being ordained. So that's part of it. For me, it's just uh, um, no, nothing really much deeper than that at this, at this point, other than uh, I prefer not to wear it. I never did wear them in the summers, uh, even when I was wearing them otherwise. But. I have a little more, a different answer, I think. if. Uh if Pastor Chad and I had talked about it after I got ordained and decided, like, this is the thing we're going to do, we, I w we would be doing it. But we kind of talked about it and decided, like, you know, nobody it hasn't really bothered anybody, so we're going to just keep not wearing them. Um, I think, for me, I appreciate the non-distinction between me uh, as Natalia and me as Pastor Natalia. I am the same uh, when I'm up there preaching and when I'm out in the community and when I'm in my office and when I'm here on a random weekday. Um, and I made that very clear at my ordination when I said ordination didn't make me special and Luther talked about how baptism is the only ordination anyone needs and I gave everybody a, I have a tattoo that says beloved on my wrist to remind me of that and I gave everybody who was here a beloved tattoo on that day, uh, a fake one, obviously. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so that we would remember um, the importance of how we are in this uh, priesthood of all believers that Luther talked about, that we all have, have a role to play in the church. And for me, the intentional separation that is created by an alb and a stole uh, does not, uh, just means for me that I am seen as different. Uh, and I don't believe I am. Uh, and I don't believe I'm somehow magic or special just because I have this, this role here. So that is an intentional piece. And also, when I inevitably mess up and do something really human, uh, I have less far to fall if I'm not on such a high pedestal, which is another intentional piece for me. I think when you place yourself as this sort of, you are this holier than everybody because you're wearing white robes and you look holier than everybody on a Sunday, then you inevitably are seen as... Uh, you've fallen further when you mess up, and I mess up a lot, so I'd like to just fall a little bit lower to the ground more often. 
as often as I fall. <laughs> Uh, my conservative friends say I have to ask Jesus into my heart. And people always say, follow your heart. The Old <laughs> Testament says I'll turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And scripture says that all evil thoughts come from the heart. And yet we're told to love the Lord with all our heart. What, how does this fit into Lutheran theology? That's yeah, a great question. There's a lot of heart talk in the Bible and used in different contexts and I think we have a, a, a sense of what even the Bible and what the ancients were talking about when they talked about heart versus the, the mind or some other way of, of being. The whole business of accepting Jesus into your heart or inviting Jesus into your heart generally comes from a theological perspective that involves what we might call a decision theology, so my salvation. You know, and again, this relates to the scripture we just read, which is the question that looms over that whole theology is what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that theology is answering. But the premise behind the question and the answer is the idea that there is something I can do <laughs> to inherit eternal life. There's something that I can do, Chad, to warrant or earn or activate eternal life. Uh, Lutheran theology, uh, really our faith tradition, wants to turn that all on its head. No, nothing against accepting Jesus into your heart. Have at it. <laughs> no harm done. Go for it. I used to do it every summer at, at church camp. <laughs> They would invite us up to, they would describe, I've said this before, but they would describe how, you know, do you sometimes not listen to your parents and do, you, you know, are you mean to your sisters and, they, you know, whatever. They would describe this person who was clearly not, you know, <laughs> living up to God's standard and, and the, the answer to all of that to, and, and really the subtle sort of other side of this coin is to save you from burning in hell, but they didn't use that language. But the answer to all of that was to accept Jesus into your heart. Come forward and accept Jesus in your heart. Well, I did it last year at <laughs> camp, but clearly he's still describing me because of the, mostly because of how I treat my sisters. And, <laughs> and so I would go up again and accept Jesus into my heart again. So it just, I could never be sure that it worked. And that's the problem with that, among the problems with that theology. It's coercive <laughs> and it's a threat. And the gospel is, in the end, if you carry it out to its logical conclusion, the gospel has been turned into a law. Do this or else. And I don't care how friendly or lovely the thing you're being told is, it's still law. And law is death because you come up short. Whether it's, you know, learn, memorize, and live by these 613 laws that we decipher in the scriptures, or it's as simple as accepting Jesus into your heart. Say this little prayer with me. <laughs> Either one of them is law, and you're, and you're doing it. You're convincing yourself. And next summer, the preacher's going to stand up there, and you're going to realize, crap, I'm the same guy I was last year. <laughs> I need to do it again. We want to focus on the unmerited, unwarranted grace of God that claims us. The song, the lovely song 
uh, Paul and Amy saying had this, this beautiful line in about love chasing after us. You know, that's, we want to say that this God, this, this God is in hot pursuit of us in order to catch us uh, so that we can stop trying to justify ourselves long enough for God to say, you're mine. And maybe we're squirming and fighting against it while the waters are, are poured over our heads and we are named uh, by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, marked with the cross of Christ forever. And no one asked our permission, nor said there was something we had to do to activate it or be worthy of it or understand it. And when the guy stands up the next summer and convinces me what a rotten kid I am, I say, yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Thank God I'm baptized. I'm claimed, named, forgiven. Thank God for that because I'm having trouble pulling it off on my own. <laughs> yeah, I think the um, letting Jesus into your heart or accepting Jesus stuff is, uh, it's, I just want to know what that looks like. What does it look like? How, it's that same, what Chad has already said, like, how, how much is enough, right? And that's the question this guy asks when, when he gets this answer and he's like, listen, I've done all of this stuff. And Jesus is like, good, good for you. You know, and then this guy is like, okay, but do I really, like, do I really have to, like, who's my neighbor? Like, do I really have to love everybody? Do I really have to love that guy over there? And, and uh, it's this question of, like, how, how far do I have to go for this to be good enough, right? And uh, that, that question is you're never going to, it's never enough. What does accepting Jesus into your heart look like? What does letting Jesus into my heart look like? At what point is Jesus in there? We're not in there. If I act this way, is that Jesus in there or is that Natalia in there? When do I win? When does Jesus win? I think you just don't know. How do you know? It's like a really weird phrase, letting Jesus into your heart. Uh, I think, I think the, the question of loving God with all your heart, that is, I mean, that's law. That's the, that's the Shema Israel was like, the thing everybody memorized and tried to do all the time. And then when they messed up, they went to temple and they did an offering and a sacrifice and all that stuff. And this, this system is what Jesus is sort of speaking up against. Uh, there's a system of, of mercy and love and of, you know, who's expected to do the churchy guys walk by, the person least expected. The one who they would say, that guy hasn't let Jesus into his heart is exactly the one who helped and they have to decide what that looks like and what that means. I find that really interesting in this story. And I think the question of what it means to have a hard heart or all these languages, heart language in scripture, is a recognition that, that our motivations so often come from our heart. And I think that's still true, right? We have head knowledge and heart knowledge, and if you are a Colbert fan, you have gut knowledge, and you kind of, uh, you know, decide where you move from and how you move throughout the world and what motivates you. And, and Scripture is trying to tell us, you know, your heart can be motivated by love for a person and not love for a person. And I think they, the definition of a not love for another person, they always talk about being hard. You're not open to another person. Your heart is hardened. Um, so I think there's something beautiful about uh, Harden Not Your Heart is a, is a song that I've heard, uh, a worship song I know. I don't even know who wrote it, but um, I'm rambly. But I just, uh, I, there's this language of, the, all the heart language I think is so important because it reminds us um, 
a sort of our, where our motivation comes from, right? Of love for another person. And even in, in ancient times and modern times, we consider love to be sort of our highest value, our highest thing that we're moving towards. And that, that idea of like letting Jesus into your heart, I think has sort of co-opted this other beautiful thing that was, has been in scripture before that, which is what does it look like to love God and love your neighbor with all of your heart and soul and mind? And recognizing that, uh, that there is something more than just accepting involved in that. And that one might say that the priest and the Levite had done a good job of accepting the Lord, uh, and the Samaritan who maybe hadn't was the one that showed the love. So, I don't know, I think those two things are lovely together. In uh, Mission Jamaica, we have the opportunity of sitting down for dinner with uh, Pastor Douglas, which kind of shepherds us around in a lot of our activities there. Um, and we've had the chance to talk to them, uh, ask questions about their theology and what's going on. And the question we had last time was on, on uh, false prophets and, and how did he see that whole scenario. And the question I have is with, with false prophets, how do we as people of God, people of this church, take and look at what's being bombarded on our minds. Uh, you know, social media is much different than it was 30 years ago, so it's probably easier back then to decipher some of this stuff. But today, there's so many opinions that are, are given to us that we should believe, but yet again, if we read the Bible, it kind of lays out a clear path to go. But I, I think sometimes that can be diluted a little bit. And how do we, as, as people of God, look at the word false prophets and say, okay, let me just say it. Could that be a false prophet right there? I don't know. I mean, how should I believe? How should I deal with that? I, that's a, such a great question. Uh, if, you, if you didn't hear, he was asking about false prophets, this idea, like, how do we distinguish what a false prophet is? It's a great question. I think you hold up uh, what a person is saying against Scripture, against what Jesus did in the world, and say, does it, does it fit? So anytime somebody is excluding, hating, mistreating, creating boundaries, all this, and you hold that up against what Jesus did, it just doesn't match, it doesn't match. So I would say there's a lot of false prophets out there saying, isolate, 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 you're out, you're out, you're out, you're out. Uh, I would say, I would call all of those false prophets. Now I think, I would guess I'm a false prophet sometimes, I don't always get it right, but I, at least if I'm gonna make a mistake, I would like to make a mistake on the side of inclusivity and love and caring for the least of these, which is what Jesus did. So I feel like if you just hold up what Christ did in the world, that is our best description of what God was, God is like in the world, is what Jesus did when he was here. And I think you just hold those two up and kind of make a decision. It's not easy, but there are people who are saying a lot of things that, that, are, that they say are Christian that are not, that's just not Christian, for sure. I'd label all those false prophets. <laughs> yeah, that's great, man. I, I mean, there are also people out there claiming to be actual, like, <laughs> biblical prophets. There was a conference at a church here in town uh, last year on the blood moons and what all that means to the end times, and this guy purports to be a prophet and reads all of these signs and declares, you know, the rapture is eminent and all this stuff. So, you know, when you're speaking of false prophets, you can generalize and talk about um, people who might be speaking contrary to what we would decipher as kind of the, the gospel message of love and inclusion and 
but then there's also people who are claiming to be actual prophets and they're, they're, they're writing books and they're bestsellers and they speak at conferences and, you know, I've, <laughs> I think it's just nonsense. It's just quackery, um, which is another way of saying false prophet, I suppose. <laughs> but, but people want to hear it and love, love to hear it and conjecture and all that stuff. It's important for us to be grounded in our own confessional theology. We are not just out here making up what it is we, we, we claim uh, to believe. We have the weight of a whole history of, of proclamation. Uh, and, um, and so we are, we are moored to a, a faith tradition, a theological perspective that can help us negotiate, um, you know, what, what we would call, you know, false prophecy or, or could. It's a, good, it's a good thing to think about. So, like, where did the stories in the Bible who decided that they were going to be part of the Bible and how did like all the different chapters come together? That's a great question. The Bible was first uh, oral, so it was a spoken, people told stories, just like your family has stories, fish tales and all sorts of things that you've been telling for generations that keep getting passed down. Uh, the Bible was that for a while. And then scholars got together and decided that this needed to be written and it needed to be preserved. And so people wrote stuff down, and then throughout the centuries, um, certain ones were preserved better than others, certain ones were kept, certain ones were decided that wasn't, I mean, there was a group of people that kind of decided what got to be in and out. Now, do I have some opinions about that group of people? Yes, yes, I do. Um, we can talk about it later, but also, uh, there is no lens-free reading of these scriptures, and so even the people who wrote them down, who wrote these oral histories down, uh, had a lens they were trying to tell. So remember, if, if you've been here the past couple of Sundays, we've been in Luke, and Luke has, he, he wants us to know that Jesus is here to proclaim release to the captives, to set the, um, the slaves free, to proclaim good news to the poor. This is what his lens is. This is every story he tells is going through this lens, right? So every writer of a story wrote down something with a lens. Does that mean that the Bible's not holy? No, the, the, the Bible is holy. Does it mean that um, when I read the Bible, I read it a certain way? Yeah, and that's true of everybody who reads the Bible. So like, I can't take out who I am from reading the scripture. And the same is true of the people who wrote it down, who decided what went in and what went out, and who kind of put it together. Uh, but it has been in its iteration for a long, long time as it is, and, um, and people keep translating it and trying to understand it better, and I think that's what makes it interesting. I think because it is an oral book first, um, it would be interesting some Sunday to close your eyes and not read along when somebody is, is speaking the text, um, because it is supposed to be heard and not read. Uh, that was the, the whole purpose of the writing down was so that it wouldn't be forgotten, but it has always been a spoken thing. And so it's an interesting practice to try to close your eyes when you're hearing it read and see what sticks out for you. So the Bible is probably better thought of as a library than as a book because it's a, it's a bunch of books and sometimes books within books and written at vastly different times for different reasons, different genres, poetry, history, law, um, genealogy, uh, liturgy, music, you know, so you don't read all of those different types of literature in the same way. You don't derive meaning from them in the same way. So 
the Bible is a, an amazing combination uh, uh, written over, over many centuries uh, for a whole variety of different reasons. A few sessions ago, uh, I went back uh, to a question, where did God come from? Going back that far again, pretty much anyways. Over time, and I haven't heard too much of it uh, lately, but back when uh, I was a lot younger, you heard of uh, evolution versus creation. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's uh, you know, science versus church. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And if creation was everything, how did people uh, come to, with all of the different nationalities, uh, different locations, uh, et cetera? Is it in fact uh, really both? Was there creation and uh, evolution? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to add? Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we believe in a God who creates. And so uh, I think God still creates. I think that, that means the work of creation is never done. Uh, I was a biology major who became a pastor. So do I believe in both? Yeah, you betcha. I'm you. a pastor and I'm gonna become a biology major next. So. <laughs> no, I'm not You're gonna do the opposite? Uh, and uh, I've never, I, I know that this has been a struggle for some people in the church. It, 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 evolution makes sense and God makes sense and both uh, haven't figured out everything yet, and I'm okay with both of those, uh, both of those things. I think it's interesting that, you know, science, science calls the, the moment of creation, like whatever created that to start happening, the God particle, right? Like they call the start of everything, even they still call it God because there's no other name for it. And to me, that's like, it's, that's more proof to me than anything that they, they can't, they can't get to down to zero. What happened at t equals zero? I'm getting real nerdy right here, watch out. But they can, uh, they can figure out lots of stuff around that and I think that's interesting and, and beautiful and I feel like we believe, I mean our first line of Genesis is in the beginning, you know, like God hovered over the heavens, you know, hovered over the, the darkness. Chaos. And the, yeah, and like God is always creating. And to me the story of people who struggle with these two things as this as they say, oh, well, Genesis has to be the way it happened exactly like that or it's not true. And to me, I've never felt that. I felt like the point of Genesis is that we believe in a God who creates, and that's, that's good enough for me. I believe in a God who created all of this beautifulness. And however that got to this place, trees in this country look different than trees in Africa, and that is because the climates are different in Africa and Minnesota, and that's just the way the world is, and that's beautiful and awesome that trees maybe all started out together and now are somewhere else. That's bonkers, and that is beautiful, that God creates in such a way that we can adapt and change with our surroundings. I think that's incredible. I don't think it, it minimizes the creative God at all, I don't think, and so I, I love looking around at creation and seeing how adaption happens. I think evolution is super interesting to watch and to ponder and to look at. It doesn't change a darn thing for me. Oh, and part of, the, part of the addressing this question goes to the former question is how we understand 
the creation accounts in Scripture? Where, what, what, what part of the library do we put that book in? Is that in the historical uh, uh, part of the library or the, or the science uh, section? <laughs> or is it in uh, a metaphorical, um, um, deeper theological area of, of the library where that book is? I mean, the, the ancients had no conception of, of, um, of these stories telling them uh, how uh, God scientifically created things. If, if they had, they wouldn't have included two separate creation accounts that disagree with each other <laughs> right at the front of the first book of the Bible as we have it. Some, some editor would have caught that, right? <laughs> Wait, you know, this was created before that, but this says that was created on this day and not that day. They weren't, that's not what it was about, never was. We would like it to be that. We've tried to wrestle that into our current uh, conception of where we want to shove that book in the <laughs> science section of the library, but it never belonged there. It wasn't what it was trying to tell us. It wasn't how those people derived truth and meaning from those scriptures and life. You know, it was about uh, telling us why and, and who and, and, who, and who we are and bigger bigger questions. So uh, the, the, the friction, the supposed um, opposition between science and evolution and creation, that exists for some people in the Christian faith tradition. It does not exist for us. It need not. Does, it, it's, it's, not it's never been an, anything but a fun thing that's happening over here to me, but it's not really something that is... Uh, source of conflict for uh, folks who uh, come from the sort of Lutheran confessional theological understanding of what God has done uh, in creation and continues to do, and calling us to be a part of what God is creating. For the kingdom of, hand, the kingdom of God is at hand, you know, and you're, you're called to be a part of the work God is doing in this world. So, you know, we're not really so worried about um, some supposed conflict between science and religion. I've never seen it. And I don't think, like, when you hear that the things that make up me also make up stars, like, I think that's incredible, not a challenge to my theology. I think that's, like, the most beautiful thing. Awe-inspiring. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it should, like, if you... Like, the things that make the sky at night make up me. Like, that's so awesome. That's not, that doesn't do anything to my faith. I'm like, I, like, that makes me a part of the created. You know, all of the created. I think that's so beautiful. And that, that doesn't challenge my theology. I'm like, if you have four Legos in front of you, you just mix them up together, and they all make different things, and that's awesome. You know, like, you make it this thing over here, and you make this thing over here, and we're all made up of the same stuff. That's awesome. We are all made up of Legos. That is the takeaway from that. But that the building blocks of life are the same everywhere, and that's, that's I mean, that's just incredible. And, uh, and there's then shared, there is shared stewardship there, right? I am more likely to take care of the planet when I recognize that I am a part of what is created, right? The, the trees and me are the same. Uh, we're a little different, but you know, like we have the same building blocks. Therefore, as much as I care for myself, I care for the environment. As much as I care for myself, I care for my neighbors in need. That is all a part of our, 
we are all a part of the created order, and that is, it doesn't make it less um, beautiful to me that we are all from the same stuff. Exactly. Yeah, so we want to thank you all again for being open to um, um, this kind of creative approach to doing theology together. I hope that um, even if you're ha you have questions or ideas you would like to have shared, you know, we can, we've been doing this now for years, so we just keep doing it on occasion. But more than that, we want to say it's okay to wrestle with, uh, with your, um, your history with the church and what that has meant to you and what it means now and what it might mean in the future and with your understandings of, of uh, scripture and, and your questions, I think all of it, you know, even the lesson we read today was a guy coming to Jesus with some questions and Jesus didn't like map out a 10 point plan. The first thing he does is launch out into this crazy story about a guy getting robbed and left in a ditch and going to hotels and leaving money. I mean, the whole thing is just amazing, but it's not like here's the three point plan or the four point plan. You know, it's, I think, engaging with the faith in the context of Christian community is a healthy thing. And uh, we're, I know we are grateful that we were able to do a bit of that here this morning on this lovely summer Sunday.